Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast, Part 2, Chapter 1 of Buddenbrook's Two Years Later. And there's a baby. And um, not only is there a baby, the baby has... Um, prompted, sorry, I got lost in my own thoughts there, the memory of Buddenbrook Sr.'s first wife and why he dislikes got old. Swim said the mum of Fishy says, Observations, got hold married for love, much to his father's fury, whereas Junior followed his father's advice and married the daughter of a wealthy Kroger who brought a handsome dowry into the firm. Senior himself married for love the first time, but his second marriage was much more practical and he also married a second wife with money. Poor got old, he must have had a miserable childhood, with what with Senior blaming him for his mother's death. His father had seen his eldest son, only the person who had wickedly destroyed his happiness. I wonder if the grandfather's aphorism, my son, shows zeal for each day's affairs of business, but only for such that make for peace, a peaceful night's sleep, foreshadows events that will happen later. Techrific says, by this point, the foreshadowing is in plain sight. No, it feels like a torrent of dark water washing over us readers, despite the dazzling April sunlight. The chapter was filled with contrasts, the sorrows of the adults and the children's sheltered and innocent universe, where the stork brings a new sister and gifts for the other children. Poor Gotthold, yes, not only for his relationship with his father, but his half-brother as well. His relationship with his family is really strained and precarious. Star 415 says, I enjoyed this chapter. It gave us a much-needed background on the family. This record book must be hefty if for each entrance Jean is going to write pages and pages of his religious impressions. The narrator has always a remark about Clotilda and her eating habits. It would be interesting to know more about her. I felt more sympathy for Gotthold after this chapter. His father blamed him all his life for his mother's death, but his love for his wife did not prevent him from marrying again for strength and to strengthen his business. Zoch says this was pretty interesting. I like the case with stories from generations past. All this must increase Sheen's sense of duty to carry on the torch. Does anyone's family keep such records? I think my family has records, but I have never inquired and I am scared to. Uh, yeah, we've got some records in my family. My mum is really into the whole family tree, you know, ancestry.com type thing. But aside from that, there's a lot of cool historical documents my grandfather no sorry my great grandfather um on the on my mother's side spindle side um was into poetry he wrote poetry and um which I find interesting he that's the British sort of side of my family if you go back that far um is it Britain or might even be Oh, it's Britain, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it might be Wales. Anyway, um, we've got some poetry that he wrote from way back then. Swims to the Mum Fishy says, My family does not have records, but then again, my family came from various parts of Western Europe to America in the 18th and 19th centuries and then continued to wander all over the country. Somehow, all this wandering converged in Denver, Colorado, in the 20th century and produced my mum and dad. I myself continued the family habit of wandering once I reached of age. My children have the wandering habit too.
all this wandering and not conducive to record keeping. Maybe you could uh, start start that. You keep some records of your folks and yourself and your children, and there you go. That's already three generations record kept by one person. All right, let us read chapter two. Early in the summer, sometimes as early as May or June, Tony Buddenbrook always went on a visit to her grandparents who lived outside the castle gate. This was a great pleasure for life was delightful out there in the country, in the luxurious villa, with its many outbuildings, servants, quarters and stables, and its great parterres, orchards, and kitchen gardens, which ran steeply down the river Trave. The Krogers lived in the grand style. There was a difference between their brilliant establishment and the solid, somewhat heavy comfort of the paternal home, which was obvious at a glance, and which impressed very much the young demoiselle Muddenbrook. Here there was no thought of duties in the house or kitchen in the Mengustres, though her mother and grandfather did not seem to think it important. Her father and her grandmother were always telling her to remember her dusting and holding up Clothilde as an example. The old feudal feeling of her mother's side of the family came out strongly in the little maid. One could see how she issued her orders to the footman or the Abigail and to her grandmother's servants and her grandfather's coachman as well. Say what you will, it is pleasant to make sorry, say what you will, it is pleasant to awake every morning in a large, gaily tapestried bedchamber and with one's first movements to feel the soft satin of the coverlet under one's hand, to take early breakfast in the balcony room, with the sweet fresh air coming up from the garden through the open glass door, to drink instead of coffee a cup of chocolate handed one on a tray, yes, proper birthday chocolate, with a thick slice of fresh cupcake. True, she had to eat her breakfast alone, except on Sundays, for her grandparents never came down until long after she had gone to school. When she had munched her cake and drunk her chocolate, she would snatch up her satchel and trip down the terrace and through the well-kept front garden. She was very dainty, the little Tony Buddenbrook, under her straw hat curled a wealth of blonde hair, slowly darkening with the years. Lively, Grey-blue eyes and a pouting upper lip gave her fresh face a roguish look, borne out by the poise of her graceful little figure. Even the slender legs in their immaculate white stockings trottled along over the ground with an unmistakable air of ease and assurance. People knew and greeted the young daughter of Consul Buddenbrook as she came out of the garden gate and up the chestnut-bordered avenue. Perhaps an old market woman driving her little cart in from the village would nod her head in its big flat straw hat with its light green ribbons and call out, Morning, little missy. Or Matheson, the porter, in his wide knee breeches, white hose and buckled shoes would respectfully take off his hat as she passed. Tony always waited for her neighbour, little Julie Hagenstrom. The two children went to school together. Julie was a high-shouldered child with large staring black eyes who lived close by in a vine-covered house. Her people had not been long in the neighbourhood. The father, Kerr Hagenstrom, had married a wife from Hamburg with thick, heavy black hair and large, larger diamonds in her ears than anyone had ever seen before. Her name was Semlinger. 
Hagenstrom was partner was partner in the export firm of Strunk and Hagenstrom. He showed great zeal and ambition in municipal affairs and was always acting on boards and committees and administrative bodies, but he was not very popular. His marriage had rather affronted the rigid traditions of the older families, like the Mollendorps, Langhals and Buddenbrooks, and for another thing he seemed to enjoy thwarting their ideas at every turn. He would go to work in an underhand way to oppose their interests in order to show his own superior foresight and energy. Heinrich Hagenstrom makes trouble the whole time, the console would say. He seems to take a personal pleasure in thwarting me. Today he made a scene at the sitting of the Central Palpers Deputation and a few days ago in the Finance Department. The old skunk, Johann Buddenbrook interjected. Another time, father and son sat down at table angry and depressed. What was the matter? Oh, nothing. They had just lost a big consignment of rye for Holland. Strunk and Hagenstrom had snapped it up under their noses. He was a fox, Heinrich Hagenstrom. Tony had often heard such remarks, and she was not too well disposed towards Julie Hagenstrom. The two children walked together because they were neighbours, but usually they quarrelled. My father owns a thousand thalers, said Jolshan. She thought she was uttering the most terrible falsehood. How much does yours? Tony was speechless with envy and humiliation. Then she said in a quiet, offhand manner, My chocolate tasted delicious this morning. What do you have for breakfast, Julie? Before I forget, Julie would rejoin, Do you like one of my apples? Well, I won't give you any. She pursed her lips, and her black eyes watered with satisfaction. Sometimes Julie's brother Herman went to school at the same time with the two girls. There was another brother too named Moritz, but he was sickly and did his lessons at home. Herman was fair-headed and snub-nosed. He breathed through his mouth and was always smacking his lips. Stuff and nonsense, he would say. Papa has a lot more than a household thaler. He interested Tony because of the luncheon he took to school. Not bread, but a soft sort of lemon bun with currants in it and sausage or smoked goose between. It seemed to be his favourite luncheon. Tony had never seen anything like it before. Lemon bun with smoked goose, it must be wonderful. He let her look into his box, and she asked if she might have some. Herman said, Not today, Tony, because I can't spare any. But tomorrow, I'll bring another piece for you, if you'll give me something. Next morning, Tony came out into the avenue, but there was no Julie. She waited five minutes, but there was no sign. Another minute there came Herman alone, swinging his lunchbox by the strap and smacking his lips. Now, he said, there's a bun with some goose between, all lean. There's not a bit of fat on it. What will you give me for it? A shilling, suggested Tony. They were standing in the middle of the avenue. A shilling, repeated Herman. Then he gave a gulp and said, no, I want something else. What? demanded Tony, for she was prepared to pay a good price for the dainty. A kiss, shouted Herman Hagenstrom. He flung his arms around Tony and began kissing at random, never once kissing her face, for she flung her head back with surprise, with surprising agility, pushed him back with her left hand, he was holding her satchel against his breast, while with her right hand she dealt him three or four blows in the face with all her strength. He stumbled backwards, but at that moment Sister Julie appeared from behind a tree like a little black demon, and falling upon Tony, tore off her hat and stretched her cheeks unmercifully. 
After this affair, naturally, the friendship was about at an end. It was hardly out of shyness that Tony had refused the kiss. She was, on the whole, a forward damsel, and had given the console no little disquiet with her tomboy ways. She had a good little head, and did as well in the school as one could desire, but her conduct, in other ways, was far from satisfactory. Things even went so far that one day the schoolmistress, a certain Fraulein Agatha Vermeeren, felt obliged to call up on the Frau Consul and flushed with embarrassment to suggest with all due politeness that the child should be received a paternal admonition. It seemed to Tony, despite frequent correction, had been guilty, not for the first time of creating a disturbance in the street. There was, of course, no harm in the fact that the child knew everybody in town. The consul quite approved of this and argued that it displayed love of one's neighbour, a sense of harmony, sorry, a sense of human fellowship, and a lack of snobbishness. So, Tony, on her way through the streets, chatted with all and sundry. She and Tom would clamber about in the granaries on the waterside, among the piles of oats and wheat, prattling to the labourers and the clerks in the dark little ground floor offices. They would even help haul up the sacks of grain. She knew the butchers with their trays and aprons. When she met them in Broad Street, she accosted the dairy women when they came in from the country and made her take her a little way in their carts. She knew the grey-bearded craftsmen who sat in the narrow goldsmith's shops built into the arcades in the market square, and she knew the fishwives the fruit and vegetable women, and the porters that stood on the street corners chewing their tobacco. So far this was very well, but it was not all. There was a pale beardless man of no particular age who was often seen wandering up and down Broad Street with a wistful smile on his face. This man was so nervous that he jumped every time he heard a sudden noise behind him, and Tony delighted in making him jump every time she met eyes, set eyes on him. Then there was an odd little woman with a large head who put up a huge tattered umbrella at every sign of a storm. Tony would harass this poor soul with cries of mushroom whenever she had the chance. Moreover, she and two or three more of her ilk would go to the door of a tiny house in an alley off John Street where there lived an old woman who did a tiny trade in worsted dolls. They would ring the bell. And when the old dame appeared, inquire with deceptive courtesy if her and Frau Spittoon were at home, and then run away screaming with laughter. All these ragamuffinly tricks Tony Buddenbrook was guilty of, indeed, she seemed to perform them with the best conscience in the world. If one of her victims threatened her, she would step back a pace or two, toss her pretty head, pout with her pretty lip, and say, Pooh! in a half-mocking, half-angry tone, which meant try it if you like. I'm a console Buttonbrook's daughter, if you don't know. Thus she went about in the town like a little queen, and like a queen she was kind or cruel to her subjects as the whim seized her. All right, there we go, getting to know Tony a little bit, which is cool. After all this time, what do you think of Tony? We'll find out, hey? Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.